but it's setting everything up to make it as clear and as smooth as possible for that consumer um, to sign up for whatever you're delivering from a, a subscription standpoint. Um, I think a pitfall that a lot of people do is they look at this more from a finance standpoint. So from a revenue standpoint, rather than a consumer experience standpoint. And, you know, what we recommend is you flip it. You first design it from a consumer experience standpoint. And if you do that right, then you have nothing to worry about. The revenue will just start flowing in. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Tearsheet Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. Many people know Ingenico as a manufacturer of payment terminals. Over years, the company has acquired firms in the digital payment processing space. Our guest on the podcast today, Andrew Monroe, runs the e-payments division in North America, helping large multinational merchants accept payments from consumers around the world. Through his decade at Ingenico, Andrew has seen a lot of payment trends. In our discussion, we talk about the growth of subscription payment models and how firms can effectively implement them. We discuss how to effectively implement data strategies around optimizing conversions online. Andrew shares how firms can enter new markets with digital payments and services. Andrew Monroe is my guest today on the Tearsheet Podcast. So my name is Andrew Monroe. I work for Ingenico. Uh, currently, I'm the general manager for North America for the e-payments division of Ingenico. Um, so most everyone understands Ingenico historically as a manufacturer of payment terminals. Mm -hmm. um, over the past many years, Ingenico has acquired a number of companies in the e-commerce and m-commerce payment processing space. Um, and so I operate in that part of it. So I help enterprise level merchants, most of them multinational, large multinational merchants, um, accept payments from consumers across the world. And my focus is on North American headquartered merchants. Interesting. And, and you yourself have been with Ingenico for 10 years, is that right? A decade, exactly. Yes. Celebrated well, my decade last month. Thank you. Um, and you've moved around. So, so can, you, can we start out by, I guess, describing how the U.S. market or North American market differs from maybe some of the other geographies you've, you've been in? Correct, yeah. So I moved back to North America. So I'm originally uh, from the U.S. I don't know if you can tell by my accent. Yeah. Um, but I lived in Europe for about seven or eight years uh, prior to coming back to the U.S. about three and a half years ago. Um, and yeah, there, there's definite differences um, in the merchants in the way in which you engage. Um, you know, there's cultural differences, there's professional differences, uh, but there's also, uh, you know, I guess a needs difference depending on the profile of what a European merchant is looking for based on what a U.S. merchant is looking for. Um, you know, Europe is uh, quite unique in that there are so many small countries with so many unique cultures all huddled right around each other. And it's not just a kind of a social cultural type of thing. It's also a payment culture. So if you can take the word culture and associate it with the way payments are understood and the preferred payment methods, et cetera, um, they vary greatly uh, you know, from these smaller countries that are all almost on top of each other in Europe. And so what you see from a European merchant is they're used to the concept of a cross-border payment more so than a US-based merchant. So mm -hmm. the US is more homogenous from a payment product standpoint. Um, there's less choices from a consumer standpoint. You know, if you go state by state, you're not going to see that much of a difference from a consumer preference standpoint. Uh, but in Europe, it's, uh, it's very different. Um, you know, payment preferences vary wildly, uh, you know, based on country. Um, and so European merchants are more forced to be up to speed on the different payment cultures that, uh, that are surrounding them more so than U.S. merchants. But all that's changing due to, you know, the increase in digitalization and also the increase in, uh, in internationalization of, uh, uh, of goods and services. Yeah, so I was gonna ask about that. So say on stateside, um, 
you know, we obviously have a, a unified currency, but um, the merchant, our, our merchants expand, I guess, laterally into other types of payment methods, like either crypto or are there, are there other alternatives, I guess, that are, that are creeping up in the U.S. market? There are disruptors that are in the U.S. market, yes. Um, and I believe they're following, uh, you know, more global trends. Mm -hmm. um, so what you see is there's a lot of open banking. Um, so making bank-based payments uh, real-time, uh, making them, um, you know, more transparent from a reporting perspective. Um, that's a trend that you see a lot in Europe, uh, kind of originated out of London, but it's spreading across mainland Europe. We're also seeing that here in the U.S. Um, there's always the, uh, you know, the, the crypto. Um, I think that's a less mature a payment method, um, you know, that, uh, that's out there, but you know, the, the technology behind crypto. So it, whether it's the application of blockchain or whether it's actually using crypto as a mechanism to be a payment method, um, you know, that is still something that is being worked on here in the U S as well as globally. Um, but you know, there, there's also the e-wallets, um, yeah, I was gonna say you know, digital wallet like, adoptions yeah, very different side versus Europe, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so you see different trends, whether it's Europe or whether it's the U S but you know, the U.S. is moving more towards a banking or e-wallet or less of a credit card intensive um, payment method mix, if you will. Um, because if you look at the data, the U.S. is one of the most credit card reliant uh, countries in the world, um, I guess, based on especially uh, some of the Asia Pacific or more some of the, uh, the European countries. Actually, I want to I want to shift gears now into a topic which is interesting. We we kind of hit a tear sheet. We hit on this at two different points, but um, subscription models. And I know that merchants are, are that it's becoming a, a more popular trend there. Um, I just spoke to a banking CEO um, that has made a nice business out of a subscription model bank account, um, and we're seeing that more and more, at least in some of the digital banks that are rising. So, can you talk a little bit to that trend of 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 subscription models? And I guess. What, what are best practices in implementing them? Sure. Um, and so I guess if you provide a little bit of background to the current situation that we're in and what we see as the hastening of the subscription economy, the subscription business model over the past, I would say six, eight months, um, it's been accelerated by COVID. I'll, I'll put it that way. Uh, because everyone's lives have been disrupted. And so things that we were used to accessing either face-to-face -face or in you know, some sort of a point of sale payment aspect, um, you know, for a long time, we couldn't do and therefore people were forced to get those same experiences, get access to those same media or physical goods um, through a digital channel by either, you know, using a website or using a mobile app, etc. Um, and there's different ways of actually getting that content. Um, you know, a subscription is just one business model. Um, there's one off payments, there's kind of the free to play approach where you give some of the content for free and then you monetize other parts of the content. But what we've really seen is the subscription has kind of emerged, at least post-COVID, as one of the fastest growing business models. And it's not just, you know, historically subscriptions have been reserved for certain types of goods and services. Uh, but now you're seeing subscriptions applied, like you mentioned, um, to banking. Um, you know, you see car companies offer subscriptions. So I can pay a few thousand bucks a month and then get access to a whole fleet of BMWs or Porsches and just swap a car at any time. Um, so you see car companies, auto manufacturers turning towards subscriptions. Um, you know, you see uh, pet food companies that, you know, understand your buying habits of how frequently your pets eat and then offering you a subscription service to automatically deliver the pet food based on what they know from your data, based on when they know your pet is going to run out of food. Um, and the convenience of the subscription payment, I think, is why it's becoming such a preferred 
method of payment for consumers because you can set it up from the beginning and then you don't have to worry about it. Literally stuff, you know, if you set up a subscription for the pet food, it just arrives at your door and you don't have to worry. So the convenience factor, the consumer experience when a subscription payment is set up correctly is very, very good. And that's what we believe is driving a lot of the, uh, the uptick that we've seen. And on the merchant side, it's not so simple as just swapping out a, um, a one-time payment for a subscription payment. Are they, are they sort of, are their business models kind of changing as well in addition to the revenue model? Yes. And so effectively running a subscription payment, there, there's a whole science behind it. And there's a lot of data points that we collect that a merchant collects even before the payment process that will allow them to effectively convert a consumer from somebody who is just browsing into somebody who's not just signing up to buy something, but they're signing up to buy a recurring purchase of you know, the goods and services that, uh, that you're offering. Um, and so it's really understanding the customer, it's creating the right user experience on the website, and then it's offering the right ways of monetizing based on what you're offering. And there's not one way to, uh, to do this. It really depends on you know, the demographic of the user that is buying, you know, what the goods and services are, um, but it's setting everything up to make it as clear and as smooth as possible for that consumer um, to sign up for whatever you're delivering from a uh, subscription standpoint. Um, I think a pitfall that a lot of people do is they look at this more from a finance standpoint. So from a revenue standpoint, rather than a consumer experience standpoint. And, you know, what we recommend is you flip it. You first design it from a consumer experience standpoint. And if you do that right, then you have nothing to worry about. The revenue will just start flowing in. Interesting. And so you mentioned sort of this feedback loop with data. Um, how does Ingenico, I guess, provide that feedback to its merchants and, and to, to give them a richer, I guess, experience in terms of targeting and converting their customers? Yeah, and that's why it's super exciting to be doing this in 2020 and going into 2021 because, you know, access to data, I think big data I'm doing air quotes right now. That that buzzword has been around. <laughs> I could feel it on this end. Yeah. I can't see you, but I could feel it. Yeah. Yeah, it's been around for a while. So it's been around for well over a decade. And in fact, probably a couple of decades. But we're seeing a lot more practical use of it. Um, and you know, companies are now forced to understand and forced to intelligently use data. Um, and the output of that is, is really exciting because you can use all of these different data points to create a very, you know, that consumer experience I was talking about to create the exact consumer experience that you need. Um, and so for Ingenico, you know, we've broken down the checkout process, or I guess the, the payment process, if you will, into between four and six different kind of major events, starting with the checkout process and then ending with either a refund or a reversal or some sort of anti-payment or reverse payment. Um, and each one of those, you know, we've identified a bunch of different kind of sub-segments of areas that can be optimized. So just on the checkout page itself, so the checkout experience, so this is after, if I'm a consumer, after I've already decided to buy something and I've put it in my shopping basket, I'm about to click that buy now button. So a lot of the work's already been done. We found 26 points of optimization to optimize just that checkout experience. Um, you know, for emergent. And behind those 26 are, of course, you know, millions and millions of rows and columns of data that can be analyzed. And then you get into, you know, fraud prevention, then you get into, you know, authorization and converting a payment, and then you get into, you know, settling and actually getting the funds into your account. And each one of those different events, there are multiple, multiple ways of, or I guess, areas of optimization 
But the only way that you're going to know is if you have access to the data behind each one of those monetization areas. Interesting. Um, I also want to talk about um, this idea of entering new markets that could be geographic or that could be, I guess, lateral to a market that a merchant plays in uh, with digital payments and services. Um, this is not just greenfield work. This is like exploratory, I guess, like new types of markets. Like, can you talk about how you've, you've seen um, your clients, I guess, best perform that? Sure. And again, I think 2020 and going into 2021 is a good time to be considering going international or, you know, going cross border, whatever you want to call it. You know, there's been a lot of developments in the past five or 10 years, especially in the past five years, whether it's, you know, the increase of proliferation of online shopping, uh, whether it's trade agreements amongst countries, whether it's more efficient delivery networks, um, you know, kind of everything combined has made it simpler than ever for a company to decide to offer their goods and services cross border. Um, you know, we focus a lot, or at least, We've been forced to focus a lot more on digital goods and services in a post, I guess we're currently in COVID, but a post-COVID world, uh, uh, it, you know, being in COVID as we are right now. Um, and when you're offering a non-physical good and service, it makes going international even easier because you don't face the logistical challenges or some of the uh, specific VAT or tax challenges that may be assessed on, on physical goods. Um, so if I'm a merchant and I'm offering, you know, truly a digital good or a service, um, now is the right time to consider taking that and, um, and, and figuring out, you know, the, I guess the best markets to enter from an international or cross-border standpoint. Got it. And, you know, a few years ago, like Omnichannel was like something we were hearing all the time on the podcast. And um, is that table stakes now? Like, have, have we done a good job doing Omnichannel, particularly internationally? Internationally, no. So omnichannel is a, is a difficult concept just because, well, for a lot of reasons. Um, the theory of omnichannel makes perfect sense. And, you know, I've seen very good implementations and rollouts of omnichannel in certain countries, but a true cross-border omnichannel solution is one that everyone is still trying to, to crack. Um, it becomes increasingly difficult where, I mean, there's things like the way that the software on the POS machine communicates and how that interfaces with the online ordering system mm. um, and making it seamless to device, you know, so it's more of a, from a consumer experience standpoint, obviously you want the omni-channel to be uh, available regardless of what POS device or regardless of, of what you're using, you want it, you know, available everywhere. Um, and that's been a really hard one to, uh, to crack. But again, you know, what will be interesting for me to see at least how, the effects of COVID will affect the developments for Omnichannel because a lot of Omnichannel was really driven on that mix of physical payments versus non-present payments or virtual or e-commerce payments. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing a shift way more towards e-commerce payments and less physical payments because of yeah, the, the, the quarantine and everything. So it'll be interesting to see what that does on, uh, on, on the Omnichannel developments. So, so just asking a corollary to that question, I guess, how, how have you seen, merchants react um, to COVID? How, how, you know, what are some of their struggles? How are they surviving? How are they thriving in this, in this market? Yeah, I've seen the full spectrum. Um, so some merchants uh, are, are really struggling. Um, it depends on the industry that they're in. It depends on the demographic and kind of the, the goods and services they're selling. Um, and yeah, I mean, especially if you're in travel and transportation, travel, this yeah. is a, a tough market. Um, but, you know, I've also seen the opposite where I've seen merchants have to deal with an unexpected surge of demand 
um, you know, a demand that in January and February of this year, they had no way of forecasting. And then you face scalability issues. Then you face, you know, the ability to actually meet that demand. Um, and that's a good problem to have, but if there's not a good foundation set before that, then it can be really challenging for companies to scale their systems and to meet the needs of the increasing consumer demand. And that's what we're really helping out with. So, you know, we're doing kind of both sides of that, uh, that spectrum there. So for the merchants that are now, you know, facing a decrease in demand, um, you know, we're helping them plan and, you know, really get their systems at the level they need to be um, to hit the ground running and to really take full advantage when things start to recover. We're seeing a slow recovery, but, you know, as things really start to, uh, to pick up. Um, and for those merchants that were hit with kind of an unexpected, everyone all of a sudden wants my, my products, whether it's e-learning, whether it's, you know, the digital delivery of exercises and stuff like that, whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, anything that people are now, you know, requesting from their homes, we're helping them with, you know, kind of the structural things they need to do in order to meet that demand, but then doing it in the right way. Because the last thing that you want is a surge of customers that come to your site or come to your app that want to buy your product and you're unable to convert them. You're unable to actually take their payments. Um, it's a, a tremendous waste of an opportunity. And so that's what we're really helping those clients with. I guess that's a good segue into my, to my last question for our interview today. Um, you know, we're, we're in the back end of, of 2020. It's been a crazy year, unexpected year for everybody in the market. Like when you're looking into 2021, like what are your biggest priorities in the North American market? Um, you know, what are you guys looking to do from either from product perspective, rollout perspective, service perspective, like what's on your plate? Can't go into specifics, but generally speaking, um, just hyper-focused on the consumer. Um, so really, really understanding the dynamics of the consumer and having that understanding allows us to work with our merchants to create the best user experience. Um, if you don't understand the consumer, if you're not, you know, taking the consumer first approach to the way that you design either, you know, for us, it's more of the checkout experience and the whole payment experience. Um, but even just taking that beyond what, you know, Ingenico focuses on for merchants, um, you have to have that, that good understanding of the consumer. Um, and so that's what we're going to continue to do. Um, I mean, just one kind of easy stat to, uh, uh, that, that we like to throw around here is, you know, our data shows that almost 42% of customers are likely to drop off and search for an alternative website if their preferred payment method is not allowed at the checkout. So there's big numbers behind not understanding your consumer and not tailoring your experience to meet the needs of those consumers. So that's going to be our biggest focus because if you do that, then you're not only going to take advantage of any increased demand that you might have now, uh, but if the demand isn't there now and you're expecting it to return sometime in 21, you can set it up now to where when that demand does come back, that you're already ready to, uh, to handle it. And then you can help your business grow and rebound as quickly as possible. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet podcast today. Yep. Thanks a lot.